Father in heaven, I, I know that I am unworthy. And Lord, ultimately, I know that I'm unable. There's no fancy trickery. There's no eloquence in my tongue or my voice that could cause anyone's heart to move or change. But Father, all the power that is necessary is, is located in you. <laughs> it's in your perfect word. It's in you, Holy Spirit, moving through the reading, the teaching, the proclamation of your holy word. And Father, we have all gathered here together today not to listen to some foolish preacher, Lord, but we have gathered so that we might hear from you, Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us this morning as we seek to hear from you? Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? Would you help us to grow and mature in our faith? Lord, help us to take your word to heart, to be comforted and reassured. Lord, to be motivated to live for you at all costs. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To you, our perfect triune God, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, I encourage you to take it and turn with me once again to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. We are going to be in chapter 5 of First Thessalonians. We'll be picking up in verse 11, and I'll be reading through verse 28. If you didn't happen to bring a Bible with you this morning, feel free to follow along on the screens. Or if you'd like to hold a Bible in your hand, feel free to borrow one of the ones from the back of the pew that's there in front of you. If you don't own your own copy of God's Word, please, by all means, take that copy that you see in front of you as our gift to you. We would be happy to replenish it. So please know that you can do that. But regardless of however you're accessing the Word of the Lord, digital or in print, would you please stand, if you're physically able to do so, out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. As we look together now at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 11 through 28. I'll read for us, and once I've completed, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you are grateful for the word of the Lord, I encourage you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Let's look together now, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another... And build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. 
Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we've been marching our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, there's a lot of wonderful, lofty, flowery language that is complementary of the church in Thessalonica. There's some theological issues that they wrestle with, some doctrine that they teach, some things that happen in the first part of the letter. But listen, if you are like me and you like a checklist, you like a simple, straightforward list of do this, then this, then this, and here's how to do it, then you are in luck, my friend, because we have reached some of the most practical sections of the entire Bible. Paul gets to this last bit of chapter 5 and it's like, ah, I'm running out of parchment. Okay, let me say everything else that I needed to say and let me do it in as little bit of space as possible. That's usually not Paul's way of communicating, but maybe he was running out of parchment paper. I, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea, but let me tell you what, he gets straight to the point and I absolutely love it. In verse 11, we are encouraging one another. We've encouraged one another through the knowledge that the Lord is coming back. Remember that the fact that Jesus is coming back shows up in every chapter of this letter. Paul was very serious about encouraging each other with the fact that Jesus is coming back and that's a good thing. In chapter 1, in verse 3, he talks about hoping in the return of the Lord Jesus. In verse 10, he's talking about waiting to see God's Son as He returns from heaven. In chapter 2, verse 19, before our Lord Jesus at His coming. In chapter 3, verse 13, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. In chapter 4, verse 15, the coming of the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 16, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. In chapter 5, verse 2, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In chapter 5, verse 3, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In chapter 5, verse 23, what we just read, at the coming of our Lord Jesus. When Paul writes, Chapter 5, verse 11, encourage one another, build one another up. It is with eternity in mind. It is not just, boy, you're looking sharp today. Man, have I told you? Is that a new haircut? Boy, that haircut looked good on you. You did something different, didn't you? I, I, you trimmed up your beard. Oh, it looks good. I like, I like how that beard looks. It's, it's good today. Th- these are nice, good, encouraging, complimentary things to say and to do, but Paul's not just saying to give empty flattery to one another. He's saying encourage one another, build one another up in light of eternity, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming and that's where our hope is. And so you can say to someone who has suffered by their whole house being burned to a crisp, hold on, my friend, I know this is rough. I understand that it's hard, but Jesus is coming one day. You can help to build one another up by facing COVID or cancer or any other illness or disease by saying, listen, I understand just how difficult this is right now. I can't imagine what it's like to walk through life caring for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia or some sort of mental disability that is slowly tearing them away from you over time. But there is hope because before Alzheimer's or dementia can get the one that you love, Jesus might come back. And might rescue all of us who believe in Him. That is the kind of encouragement and building up that Paul is talking about. 
That I understand that times can be tough, that money can be tight, that we have no idea what's going on in the economy or with inflation or whether Russia is going to invade Ukraine or not. Or what does that mean for our nation? What does it mean for the world? Is there a financial crisis? Is the bubble about to bust? Regardless, you and I can hold on. We can be encouraged. We can build one another up because no matter what The ruler of this world, our enemy, our adversary, throws at us. No matter what our sin and our flesh and the combined sin of all the world throw at us, we have hope and encouragement that there will be a day when the Lord will come and make every sad thing untrue. Everything that causes despair, everything that causes depression will unravel Like a rope that's been used way too many times. It will just turn into phrase and then unravel into nothingness. Because we will only be left with the joy of the fact that we are saved. That God has given us a way to escape all of the tears and the tragedy. And He's given us a home. That this is where we're visiting. This is not our permanent address. This is just a simple P.O. box we've got for right now. And so I wonder, church, how well are we doing at encouraging one another, at building one another up with these words? And sometimes it just falls into the cliche thing, right? You know, you, you, you are, grieve, are counseling with somebody who's grieving and, and you say, listen, I know how hard this is, but I just want to remind you, I know your loved one belonged to the Lord. And I assure you, That if you belong to the Lord, you can and will see them again. How often do we just throw it around like a trite little cliche? Well, they in a better place. We don't know what else to say. So we just say it half-heartedly. There's no true encouragement. There's no building up. There's no reminder that God has brought you to this tragedy so that He can comfort you and then you can use that comfort to turn around and offer the same comfort to your brothers and sisters when they walk through similar tragedies. You've been brought to this for a reason and God will carry you through this for a reason. And whether it's by death or by His return, one way or another, if you are in Jesus, you will win ultimately. How well are we doing at truly building one another up and encouraging one another in light of eternity? Man, we are a loving and complimentary church. I was wanting to insert several corny jokes right here, okay? But by God's grace and mercy to you, I have foregone them and deleted them from my outline so I cannot read them to you. So, all the church said amen. We will not dwell on those. But this is a complimentary church. On Sunday morning, you're very likely to hear somebody encourage you on the way that you look or on how you did teaching the Sunday school lesson. And that's fantastic. I'm not suggesting we stop doing that. But I'm just suggesting let's add to that encouragement and building one another up in light of eternity, in light of the ultimate return of Jesus Christ. So then he moves into verse 12. And verse 12 is just an awkward verse for a preacher to have to preach through. I'm just going to be honest with you. I really wish I could just skip verses 12 and 13. That would be really nice. But what I want to say is, in all honesty, from the bottom of my heart, it is um, my honor and my privilege to be the pastor at Bethany Baptist Church. And when I read verses 12 and 13, 
you guys live this. And thank you. Thank you. I, I believe I can speak for Jason and, and, and I both when I say you show us the utmost respect and love because we labor among you. We are those who are over you in the Lord. We are those who have been charged to give an account for your souls to the Lord on the day of judgment. And as a church, Bethany, thank you for living out verses 12 and, and 13. We serve and have the honor of serving in a church where we are esteemed highly in love because of our work for the gospel. And that is not true in every church. It probably wasn't true in the Thessalonian church or else Paul wouldn't have written it. The Thessalonians, in the midst of their affliction, in the midst of their hardship, they may have had trouble in their relationships with their leaders. And that's why Paul is admonishing them to love and respect and esteem their leaders because of the work. Then he ends verse 13 with, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. And this word peace is one that we've, we've studied before at Christmas time, right? We talked about how Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Your Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Your Greek word for peace is arene. Both of those words encompass a lot more than the lack of war, than the lack of enmity between two parties. Those words in their original languages are talking about a completeness, a wholeness. If there's a wall that a brick has fallen off of or there's a huge crack in that wall and you go to mend that wall and replace the brick and put fresh mortar, you are bringing peace, wholeness, completeness to the wall. And so when Paul says, be at peace among yourselves, he's talking about have relationships with one another that are whole and complete and lacking the status of being enemies. There should be nobody that claims to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and who lives the best that they can following the Lord Jesus Christ that is your enemy if you do the same. There should be peace among the church. And now, let's, let's keep in mind, wholeness, completeness, it's not some cheap peace. It's not some easy peace. Well, I didn't fuss with anybody, so there must be peace. If you're politely ignoring someone because you don't address the severe problems that you have with one another, that's not peace. That's southern politeness. I'm not going to talk to them about that because that would be un, uh, that would be out of order. That's not my place. We have a problem, but I just don't talk to them. Or we go to the same church. We both claim to love Jesus, but I just sit over here on this side and they just sit over here on that side and that we don't cross paths and everything is okay. That's not peace. That's peacekeeping. That's the lack of an active argument going on, which is peacekeeping. Jesus doesn't call us to be peacekeepers. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. Look with me in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 9. This is a very specific statement from Jesus. He says, as he's going through the Beatitudes, as he's beginning the Sermon on the Mount, one of those famous, if not the most famous sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to have ever lived. And these are the words that he starts with in his introduction. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Makers, not blessed are the peacekeepers. 
well, it seems to be that there's a lack of tension. And so I'm going to spend all of my time and my energy and my effort to make sure that no tension builds and that the peace is kept. That's not real peace and you're not really keeping it. All you're doing is avoiding the conversations that need to happen for real peace to be achieved. No matter what you do to ignore the enormous crack in your fence, if you don't go mend the fence, the fence isn't mended. You can avoid that section of fence. You can ride to another part of the area where the fence covers and ignore that there is a huge break in your fence. But the break will always be there until you mend it. Mending a fence is making peace. It's bringing wholeness. It's bringing completeness. And what we end up doing a lot of times in the church, especially in the south part of the United States, and what we like to call the Bible buckle of the Bible belt, we go along to get along. And a lot of us, myself included, are people pleasers. And it just gets all over me when I think somebody's unhappy with me and I'm going to give up whatever I can to compromise and make sure that that person is no longer upset with me. I'm going to try to avoid that confrontation if at all possible. But Jesus didn't say he came so that we could avoid confrontation. Jesus didn't come so that we could be peacekeepers or people pleasers. Oh, oh, you like it that way? We'll just do it that way. That'll be just fine. That, no problem. No problem. That's, that's great. But inside I'm going, I did it this way because I wanted it done this way. And now you're telling me you want it this other way. And I'm too scared to tell you I don't want it done that way because then you might be mad at me. So I'm going to do it the way you want me to do, even though it's not the way that I want to do it. And now I'm mad at you on the inside, but I'm never going to say anything about it because i got to keep the peace. Every one of us has lived that at some point in time. You, you get to that thing where you say, it's just not worth it. I'll just do it their way to make them happy. I'll just make them happy. Even the most stubborn people who are going to put their foot down and say, by God, we're doing it my way. Every so often, there's somebody that ranks higher than them that they say, well, I, I don't want to rock the boat too much. I'll, I'll keep them happy. That's peacekeeping. And that's not what Jesus did. And that's not what we're to emulate. We're to have real, raw relationships. And sometimes it's very hard. Sometimes it is an extreme struggle. And a lot of times there is heartache and pain. But if you are committed to that person and you are both siblings in Christ, you can work through it and come out stronger on the other side. Or come to a place where the fence is mended, but maybe you're not in business together anymore. We use this analogy all the time. I say it from this pulpit all the time. If somebody double crosses you that you're in business with, you can offer them forgiveness. You can restore peace. But that doesn't mean that you have to go back into business with them if they swindled hundreds of thousands of dollars from your business. That's not a wise move. That's not avoiding them. That's not sitting on the opposite ends of the church from them. That's making peace with what has happened. That's restoring the relationship, but understanding I don't have to be your business partner anymore, but I'm still going to be your brother in Christ, and there's not going to be this cloud of uncertainty and ambiguity that hovers between us all the time. See, the kind of peace that Jesus made was not the kind of peace that we keep. It was a hard peace to make. He made peace between enemies. He took people who were diametrically opposed to one another and he brought them together. This is the kind of peace that Paul is calling for within the church. Because what Jesus did, if you look in Romans 5, chapter 1, 
in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Sorry about that. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes about the kind of peace that Jesus made, and it cost his very life to make it. Romans 5, 1 reads, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, we were, and maybe some of us in this room, some of us watching online, you may still be an enemy of God. And Jesus didn't come to just make nice between humanity and the God of the universe. He didn't come to just ignore the fact that there's this glaring rebellion and treason that we've committed against God Almighty. He came to make peace between enemies because we were enemies of God. And so he established peace. The peace that we have with God is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 19. Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He himself is our wholeness. He himself is our completeness. He himself is our mended fence. He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was a wall of hostility that existed between you and I and God, between humanity and a perfect and holy God. And the kind of peace that Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians is the kind of peace where Jesus tore down walls. Man, start tearing down some walls and see if people don't notice. Especially in your house, you tear down a wall and your spouse comes home. And let me tell you what they will notice. I was just going for an oven floor plan, baby. Did you know it was load bearing? Like the whole roof sagging. We got a problem here. Tear down a wall and it's a big deal. Jesus didn't care. He tore down the wall of hostility. He didn't ignore the wall of hostility. He didn't tiptoe around it. He didn't sit on the other side of the room of the wall of hostility. He barreled into it and tore it down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two so making peace verse 16 and he might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility the only way to kill the hostility was to give his very life he had to be killed in order to kill the hostility that existed between humanity and God Almighty. In verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off. And he preached peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God. There is now peace where there was no peace. And we are not strangers. We are not weird people walking up to your house in the dark, knocking on the door. We're family. We're citizens of the same country. 
And it's not the country we're in right now. But not only that, notice how Jesus talks about the peacekeeping mentality that we have versus the peacemaking he came to do in Matthew chapter 10. It's the last reference, I promise, but bear with me just a little longer. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges him before men, he also will acknowledge before his Father who is in heaven. But Jesus says, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. He's the only way to get that peace that we need. If we deny him, we're denying the peace and choosing the chaos. We're choosing the hostility. We're choosing to be enemies of God. But whoever acknowledges him, acknowledges that he's brought us peace, accepts the peace that he has made between us and the Lord, he will also acknowledge before his Father who is in heaven. Verse 34, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. All right, time out. Time out. We just spent a good 10 minutes talking about how Jesus brought peace, right? Jesus brought peace to the earth. But then from Jesus' very mouth, he said, but don't think I came to bring peace. What are you talking about? Jesus is talking about that peacekeeping garbage. That politeness where everything on the surface looks like, oh, we all get along. We're all happy. Woo. And he says, he didn't come to make that kind of peace. As a matter of fact, he came to turn that kind of peace on its head. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Hmm. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus did not come so that we could play house and pretend and have fake peace in the household of faith. That we could have fake peace every holiday. I'm just going to smile. I'm not going to talk politics because we all know Uncle Larry is just crazy. And if I bring up politics, Uncle Larry's going to be ranting at us for the rest of the Thanksgiving meal. So I'm just going to smile. I brought my dish. We're all going to eat together. We're all going to leave with COVID. And then it's going to be a great, happy holiday, okay? But I'm not going to bring anything up that could be controversial. That's, that's not peace in your family, and you know it. You don't have peace when you get ready for those family get-togethers. When you get ready to go hang out with your friends, and your friends are the same way, and you have to sidestep every possible landmine and walk on eggshells and... If I talk about that and they don't agree with me, what's going to happen? Oh, you're going to disagree. And if you're both Christians, you ought to be able to find a way to disagree civilly. To disagree agreeably. And to forge ahead in peace. Look, it says in 1 Thessalonians, to esteem the leaders of the church, to love them, to respect them, those who labor over you, to hold them in high esteem. Does that mean that you have to agree with everything the leaders of the church say and do? Uh -uh. 
Can you be a part of a church that you disagree with some of the things that are going on in the deacons and the, in the pastors, small things, procedural things? You may, we're doing communion a little bit different this morning. You may disagree with how we go about doing communion. But you know what? You and I can still have real peace. Not the kind of peace where you go, I'm just not going to talk about communion around the pastor because I just don't like how we do that communion thing where we do these cups and then we've got, I just, I can't stand that. And the pastor just keeps doing that. And I'm just not going to talk to him because it's going to get heated if we got talking about that. Well, now there's something between you and the leadership of the church. That's not holding the leadership of the church in high regard. That's not submitting to the leaders that are ahead of you. You're not doing anybody any favors by holding your tongue and being bitter on the inside. But there is a way to speak the truth in love. To have a conversation, to recognize, man, there's, there's a break in our fence right here. There's a hole in the wall. that We need to patch this hole. And you know when the hole's patched, no matter how good you are, you're probably still going to notice that the hole's there. And even if you don't notice that the hole's there, you're going to remember that the hole is there. Let me tell you, my grandmother is one of the most godly women I've ever met in my life. I'd go so far as to say she is the most godly woman I've ever met in my life. She is absolutely incredible. When she starts to pray, you know you are in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But that precious woman, as holy and as godly as she is, she does some funny stuff sometimes. She does some stuff that's a little bit clumsy sometimes. And I just absolutely love her for it. They moved into this brand new house. They downsized. They moved a lot closer to my sister. They set her up with this little room where she could watch TV. Y'all, this room ain't 10 feet wide, and she's got a 60-inch TV in that room so she can see what's going on. She's got her fancy headphones on so she can hear what's happening. Nobody else can hear anything, but she got her headphones on. Well, then she's going to kick back in her easy chair, and she's going to have her feet up, and she's going to be watching some preaching, and you're going to hear her saying, Woo, Lord! Yes, Jesus! And when she does that, she may not check to see how close her chair is to the wall. So when she kicks on back, the back corner of that wall may just go right through the sheetrock in their brand new house the first time that she kicked her feet back to watch her chair. And I want you to know that's, that's been over a year ago, all right? But it was a huge hole. The corner of the easy chair went through the sheetrock. The hole was as big as the top of this pulpit, okay? I mean, it, as perfectly in between the studs as it could be, Huge and mighty hole, had to get a sheetrock patch, took my dad forever to fix it. And let me tell you, it looks great. You have no idea that she did that, except we all know she did it, right? And we're not going to let her forget it because it's just fun to bring up. And when we go in that room, we walk over to that wall and we go, yeah, it's about right over here, Ma. That's where it happened, didn't it? That was it. You know, when somebody punches a hole in the wall, you can mend it. You can mend it so good that nobody even remembers, nobody even can tell from the outside. But you still remember. You still remember that the hole was there. Does it stop me from going over to my grandmother's house? No. Does it make my dad resent my grandmother in any way, shape, or form? Not in the least. He was happy to have something to do. He loved fixing it for her. Whatever she breaks, he'll fix again. And he'll remember, ah, she punched a hole over here. She broke that over there but he's still going to love her and their relationship's going to be just fine. We ought to be able to exist like that as Christians. I remember you broke my fence, but I also remember how awesome it was when we fixed it. And you, you can't really tell that that fence was broken, but I, I know that we broke that fence. And I like it even more now. It's got more character to it. 
That's the kind of peace that Paul's talking about. If you'll remember in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, he talks about the great afflictions that they were enduring. And when you're in the pressure cooker of trial and tribulation and affliction, it's harder to have peace. So he gives them this instruction, be at peace among yourselves. Church, I wonder, is that the kind of peace that we have as a church family? Or do we fall in the category of, well, I'm, I'm just not going to talk about that. I, I just don't want to bring that up. Do we just ignore issues that are there? Do we just go along to get along, to make people happy? Or do we choose to follow Christ? Do we choose to follow what the Lord has laid on our heart? And even if we disagree and even if it causes tension, do we work through that tension to make peace? Listen, it's bad enough to be peacekeepers, but if we allow there to be enemies within the church because we can't make peace, it's just as bad as trying to keep the peace. As Christians, we're called to be at peace among ourselves. If we can't have peace, if we can't make peace the way that Christ made peace between us and God the Father, what on earth is there going to be attractive about the church to the outside world? The outside world doesn't know true peace. The outside world only knows what it's like to have enemies. And so church, if if we don't make peace with one another, the way that Jesus made peace between us and the Father. And what kind of witness will we ever have for the rest of the world? That's the whole reason that we take communion. We take communion to remember that Jesus made peace and it cost him his very life. Sometimes making peace between us might cost the same. But it's worth it. Christ counted it as worth it. And he allowed his body to be broken severely. He allowed his blood to be poured out. And he did it all for you and for me. And so the whole reason we take communion is to remember that where we once were enemies with God, now through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, we can have Not some fake peace. True peace. Wholeness. Completeness. Shalom. That amen. Between us and God the Father. That's only possible if we acknowledge our sin and call out to Him and say, Will you save me? He will never turn you away. This morning we're going to worship by taking communion. And before we do that, we're going to spend some time confessing our sin by reading Psalm 51, the first 12 verses together. It's going to be a way for us to acknowledge to the Lord that since the service started, it's likely we've sinned in some way. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us not to approach this table lightly, but to take it seriously. And so we're going to spend time confessing our sin. And I want to remind you that 1 John, 
chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And so as, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I encourage you to, to read these words out loud together, to pray them as a prayer. And then after that, I, I'm going to pray for us. And while I'm praying, I encourage you, pray to the Lord. Ask Him to forgive you of any unrighteousness in your heart, as I'll be doing the same. If there's anything in your life causing you to not have peace in Jesus, pray that he would come and make peace through forgiving our sin. So if you will, if you're willing and able, if you're physically able, would you please stand as we look together at Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Will you read out loud with me? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray. Father, those words of that psalm ring ever true. Create within each of us a clean and righteous heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Father, please do not cast us away from your presence, but come once again and make peace. Tear down the walls of hostility that we build in our hearts and in our minds against you and against one another. Lord, thank you for allowing your body to be broken for us, for allowing your blood to be shed to wash us of all sin. Help us now to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 